0: This is the LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Center podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Greg Sanderson and Jonathan Wilson on alternative fuel and biodiesel tax credits. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis legal podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Greg Sanderson and Jonathan Wilson are with the firm Taylor English Duma in Atlanta. Mr. Sanderson provides legal services to businesses as General Corporate Counsel and Special Tax Counsel, focusing on structuring business transactions to minimize taxation. Much of his practice is in the area of alternative energy development, where he helps clients qualify for tax credits and incentives. Jonathan Wilson is a member of the firm's Business Transactions, Corporate, and Taxation Group, whose practice includes corporate securities, corporate finance and governance, mergers and acquisitions, and intellectual property. He's represented both Fortune 100, middle market, and startup companies in transactional matters for more than 17 years. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time, and for appearing on this LexisNexis legal podcast. Mr. Sanderson, let's start with, if you will, a brief overview of just what are alternative fuels.
1: Well, for the tax credit world, there's alternative fuels. The original ones were alcohol fuels. Uh, The most well-known, I suppose, is uh, ethanol, largely from corn. But there's other sources, agricultural sources of ethanol. There are some other categories, biodiesel, which is made from oils. Uh, that is a, another up-and-coming fuel. Uh, these can be used as neat fuels in their in their pure sense or they can be blended as additives with uh, diesel or gasoline. There's a few others, cellulosic fuel which is basically could be alcohol or it could be some sort of oil derived from cellulosic material like wood or uh, cellulosic biomass, not the grain portion, but the stick and leaf portion. Do you have anything to add, Jonathan? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just amazing the,
2: the creativity that comes out of, out of the engine of commerce when there's a way to, to make money on things. I have seen alternative fuels generated from waste oils, uh, including waste oils derived from, uh, uh, from poultry waste, the waste that comes from, from actually harvesting uh, poultry, to waste oils that are collected from uh, the rotisserie grills in supermarkets. Uh, operations that go and collect those waste oils, reprocess them, filter them, and then sell them as some sort of alternative fuel. So all of those different applications, I think, come together in the various alternative fuels that are, that are out there.
0: And lots of different uses, too.
2: That's right. Everything from powering cement kilns to powering boilers that generate steam to generate electricity to, in some cases, uh, you know, the ethanols that get blended with gasoline or diesel for use as fuel in a vehicle.
0: So why are they so important?
1: Well, if you consider it in terms of transportation fuels, fuels to run cars, trucks, trains, airplanes, that's primarily fossil fuel. That's uh, oil-based foreign imported product, which has national security implications. It has implications of simply sending our money overseas to other suppliers who may or may not be friendly to the United States. It would be wonderful if we could develop a sustainable, renewable, domestic source of transportation fuels to put in our motor vehicles. It would uh, keep the money home. It would keep us from being subject to security issues from importing some 60% or more of our transportation fuels as we do now. If we could take a chunk out of that, that that's a major Policy initiative that if we could solve, for instance, uh, Brazil uses ethanol from, of course, they have a different source, uh, but gas, corn, I mean, uh, sugar-based ethanol It's cheaper than corn-based, but they they import uh, very little corn oil.
2: right? And in addition to the energy independence argument that that Greg described, you know, there's also the sustainability and, and carbon neutrality argument. And, uh, you know, I think climate change is is a topic that has a lot of controversy attached to it right now. And I don't think you have to be on one side or the other uh, of the climate change argument to recognize that a way of doing business that produces less in terms of gaseous emissions is better than one that produces more in terms of gaseous emissions. And most of the alternative fuels, in contrast with petroleum-based fuels, produce fewer gaseous emissions. A lot of the, um, the ethanol plants, for example, that that are getting built today are being built with carbon sequestration already built in, so they will be releasing uh, almost nothing in terms of uh, carbon dioxide and others. In addition, under the rules of uh, carbon accounting, CO2 emissions that uh, result from agricultural-based fuels don't count towards uh, man-made CO2, the, the theory being that you know, if the tree falls in the woods, and rots on the floor of the forest, it's going to produce CO2 naturally in, the, in its rotting process. But if we take that same tree, chip it up, and reduce it to fuel, that same amount of CO2 is emitted, it's just emitted more quickly. So it's net-net, no new uh, CO2 is emitted uh, from the alternative fuel process.
0: Mr. Sanderson, could you talk about some of the incentives that uh, exist for alternative fuels?
1: Sure. There's, the incentives are broken into two baskets, I suppose you could say. One is an income tax credit, which is reported on your income tax return. You, you fill out your return, compute your tax, and then the credit would come directly off your income tax liability. The second category, and the more prominent actually, is uh, excise tax credits. Fuels used, used in, in the transportation industry are subject to excise tax, and alternative fuels have credits that offset that excise tax. However, many times the credit is larger than the tax. For instance, you might have a tax on a fuel, diesel-type fuel, of 24 cents, just for illustration. Credit for that might be 50 cents or a dollar. So your credit is higher than your tax excise tax liability. What the government has said is that these are refundable credits, so that instead of not having to pay the tax and just not getting any additional benefit, the government will will offset your $0.24 per gallon tax in my example. And if you have a $0.50 credit, they'll refund you the $0.26 as a payment. And you can apply for that quarterly or sometimes every two weeks and get your payment electronically. So that type of credit, the excise tax credit, is a very nice subsidy for these types of fuels. And basically, the fuels are um, three categories. Alcohol, which is primarily ethanol, biodiesel, which also gets a credit. The ethanol gets very various amounts based on their percentages. If you're 190 proof, you may get 45 cents a gallon. Biodiesel, on the other hand, may qualify for one dollar per gallon. There's another fuel special category, which could be either oil or alcohol, which is cellulosic biofuel. That gets a dollar one per gallon. The alternative fuel credit, which has a whole host of fuels, some are oil-based. They can be uh, biomass liquid fuels, basically, qualify for that. They get 50 cents a gallon.
0: Are these new programs, are these new incentives, or or have these been around for a while?
2: That's a great point. I think in the popular media, there's the impression that alternative fuels are are a new thing, that they're sort of a fad. Uh, But really, we've had incentives for alternative fuels since 1978. A lot of the the cellulosic uh, ethanol programs we're talking about have been around for more than 100 years. People were creating uh, ethanol uh, in the 1800s during World War II when when Germany lost control of its uh, oil pipeline through the Mediterranean. They actually began uh, producing ethanol by fermenting potatoes for uh, for their war effort. So this is actually nothing new at all. The only thing that's new is the way we are beginning to use ethanol and other alternative fuels with greater frequency uh, in our vehicles. Back in 1980, Congress and through the Department of Energy did a survey to see what the total ethanol production capacity was in the United States. And they came up with a figure of about 50 million gallons a year. The total capacity of the U.S. in 1980. There was uh, something called the Energy Security Act of 1980 that offered some insured loans for small ethanol producers and up to a million dollars in loan guarantees for ethanol production projects. Since that time, there have been... Uh, ethanol and alternative fuel related subsidies in the tax code without fail. Uh, They've taken different forms and have had different shapes and sizes, but over the years they've always been there. Most recently in the Energy Policy Act of 2005 under George W. Bush, there were a variety of uh, excise tax credits for, as Greg mentioned, uh, alcohol, alternative fuels, uh, and biodiesel. The alternative fuel credits are set to expire most of them at the end of this year, 2010. The biodiesel and the alternative fuel credits expired at the end of uh, 2009, which is what leads us to where we are today with these uh, some of these tax credit programs having expired. But I mentioned that 1980 study that found that the United States had $50 million of production capacity. Well, they did a similar study in 2008, the Department of Energy did, and they figured out that the U.S. production capacity was about 7.2 billion gallons, in terms of ethanol production, with an additional 6.2 billion gallons of capacity under construction. That was by the early part of 2008. So uh, more than a a factor of 100, uh, over the last uh, two and a half decades, we've grown our ethanol production capacity in large measure on the basis of these tax credit programs, uh, and that's why it really is a a matter of great concern for the industry that the alternative fuel mixture and biodiesel tax credits expired at the end of last year and uh, so far have not been... Uh, replaced.
0: I was going to ask if there have been any attempts by legislators to uh, extend those credits past the expiration, the, the, the 2009 expiration.
1: Uh, yes, there have been. Essentially, look at what it has expired and, and when it does expire. The alcohol fuel credits, ethanol, expires, as Jonathan said, at the end of 2010. The cellulosic biofuel credit expires at the end of 2012. The alternative fuel credit which applies to like a catch-all category that applies to oils and other fuels that don't qualify as alcohol or biodiesel expired 2009 as well as biodiesel expired 2009 there have been attempts there's a bill in the house that passed the house that would have extended the biodiesel credit for another year there was a Senate proposal out of Senate finance with the uh, Senators Bacchus and Grassley sponsoring it and uh, that would have extended the alternative fuel credit and the biodiesel credit for another year. That was in the jobs bill. However, uh, Senator Reed stripped down the jobs bill, removed that from it, to have a leaner bill to go through the House, I mean through the Senate, and it passed without the extension for biodiesel and alternative fuels. There is work in the Senate to do an extenders bill, that would uh, pick up the extension of those two credits. So we're cautiously optimistic that it will be extended. I think there's bipartisan support, but it just hasn't had the right legislative vehicle yet. So we're still watching it closely. Hopefully by this summer, we'll get a, at least a one-year extension of the biodiesel and the alternative fuel credit, which is which places a burden on industry because their credit has already expired. As I said, you get payments in excess of your excise tax liability that helps support this industry and uh, when those payments go away it it affects the bottom line.
0: Those bills really haven't gotten a whole lot of media attention I guess with all the other activity on Capitol Hill these days.
1: That's correct and there are there are some legislative tinkering with these things. One thing we haven't mentioned is, is a product called Black Liquor qualified for the alternative fuel credit for 50 cents a gallon and uh, the pulp and paper industry took advantage of it. The Treasury said it qualified, but it really cost the government a good bit of money. There are some, some tinkerings with that which would be used as a actual, actually as a revenue raiser in the health care bill to extend the alternative fuel credit and exclude paper companies from qualifying. That's seen as saving the government money so it can go to help fund health care but also extend it for the other fuels that aren't from the pulp and paper industry.
0: How have alternative fuel producers reacted to the expiration of the alternative fuel mixture credit and the biodiesel credit?
2: Well, it, It's really been a problem. You know, at, a, at a point in time when the, you know, the economy is generally perceived to be hurting, most of the uh, producers in the, in the industry have either shuttered their plants altogether, which you know, stops all production and uh, puts people out of work, Or they've reduced their production and in some cases uh, reached accommodations with their customers in which they've increased prices or they've got they've deferred some of the purchase price uh, until a future point in time when the credit comes back in to uh, to support the cost so in, in the short run it's it's very much devastating to the industry and in the longer run it becomes even more problematic as a matter of public policy you know, if public policy is to encourage the development of alternative fuels and to encourage the the development of alternative fuel producers you need to have some sort of stable regulatory environment where uh, producers know what they're going to be entitled to and their investors and their lenders are able to build out long-term financial models based upon the price that they can realize for the product and the level of governmental uh, support uh, at this point Even if Congress were to turn on a dime in the next few weeks and pass an extenders package, that law wouldn't take effect until, say, April, which gives us eight months of coverage until it expires again at the end of 2010. So if you are an investor or a lender into the alternative fuels industry, how do you take account for the value of that subsidy if you have a five-, six-, or ten-year model for your factory? It's really hard to develop a long-term value proposition for your your client, for the producer, if you don't know whether there will be any federal support available, or if so, what that federal support, what form that federal support will take, what the requirements will be, and whether those requirements will apply to this particular producer or not, or what other steps would need to be taken to comply. It's the uncertainty, really, that makes it really tough for capital to form around these alternative fuel producers. You know, at, at this point, the alternative fuel industry is uh, is really on its heels, because the the biodiesel and alternative fuel credits have been stripped away i think we're all cautiously optimistic that those credits will come back at some time during 2010 but the most likely extension would be one that would extend them through the end of 2010 and at the end of 2010 they would expire again along with all of the alcohol credits which expire for the first time at the end of 2010. so when should the industry expect to see new legislation for both the alcohol credits and the alternative fuel credits if they were extended. Well, it's going to be really tough to see a new uh, alternative fuels uh, legislation uh, in the second half of 2010 because it's going to be an election year. So in all likelihood, we would see all these tax credits expiring at the end of 2010 with a new Congress to take uh, take their seats in uh, the early part of 2011 uh, and perhaps act on those tax credit programs then. Uh, You know, we're lawyers, not politicians or political analysts, but who knows what the political makeup of Congress will be uh, after the 2010 elections and and what will be the the key issues that motivate that Congress and what will be their priorities. If their priorities include encouraging the development of alternative fuels and capital formation in the industry, you would hope to see some sort of longer-term approach uh, that set in place uh, some sort of uh, incentive program for a period of several years, if the new Congress doesn't have uh, an emphasis on return, on alternative fuels, who knows what the outcome might be? So, uh, unfortunately, it's a it's a forecast of continued uncertainty, and uncertainty by itself makes it really tough to to develop capital in the
0: industry. Uncertainty, both in the current state of the legislation and in the industry itself. I think that's right. What do you think the future holds uh, for alternative fuels in this country?
1: Well, I think future could be bright. I think Jonathan just pointed out some some issues we have with this temporary extension legislation. If we could have a comprehensive evaluation of these fuels and what they add to our domestic fuel stability and environmental issues, have a a scheme where you could look at what their values are. And right now we have a uh, hodgepodge, basically, We have income tax credits of varying amounts, and we have excise tax credits of varying amounts from 33 cents to $1.01 per gallon. And they all have different rules. Some can be burned in boilers as industrial fuel and qualify. Some have to be put in tanks. If we could have a comprehensive legislation to put all these on parity with each other and let each one get a designated amount of subsidy and compete and let the best technology win, I think we could have a long-term sustainable industry. If we don't get long-term extensions of, of legislation, I think the future may not be so bright. It, it's a stop-and-start
2: situation. And it, it's really ironic that we would be at, at a crossroads at this point when it comes to alternative fuel incentives because we're also at a technological crossroads. Uh, I mentioned that ethanol has been around for more than 100 years. Most of the ethanol that we've produced in this country over the past 100 years uh, has been grain-based ethanol, uh, ethanol that comes from a feedstock that competes with our food sources. I think most industry industry analysts would agree that we're really right now at the point of turning the corner on producing ethanol from cellulosic material, that is from non-food-based woody biomass, you know, wood waste and, and grasses and the like. If the technology bears, uh, bears fruit, pardon the pun, Uh, then that technology has the potential to produce a a great long-term sustainable energy source in the form of ethanol produced from cellulosic biomass. And just at the point where we're starting to turn the corner on the technology, the uncertainty uh, pops up around the sustainability of the the excised uh, tax credit programs. So it's it's really unfortunate and ironic. We haven't even touched upon some of the more uh, experimental forms of alternative fuels including biodiesel generated from algae, uh, other forms of uh, even higher caloric uh, fuels generated from, uh, from algae and other feedstocks. They're a little bit more at the experimental stage, but there are people out there that think that the potential we see in cellulosic ethanol is going to be surpassed by the, the production potential of algae-based fuels. Uh, you know, with, with cellulosic ethanol, you're dependent upon the long-term production of woody biomass from the soil With algae-based fuels, we could be producing uh, billions of gallons of fuel without taking up any valuable land and without impacting our our living area at all. Unless there's a long-term legislative mandate creating uh, support for the formation of capital around those, uh, those industries and around those technologies, it's really questionable whether those technologies will become commercially viable. Uh, in the
0: near term. Kind of like the old two steps forward, one step back. Just as we're ready to break through with something, there's something holding us back. Uh, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your analysis of these issues. There's certainly a good deal going on and a lot to consider. And I look forward to having you back on a future program to provide an update and discuss these issues further. Thank you for being part of our Alexis Nexus podcast. Thank you. You're
1: certainly welcome. We've enjoyed
0: Craig Sanderson and Jonathan Wilson of Taylor English and Tuma in Atlanta. This has been the LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Center podcast. Visit the Emerging Issues Law Center and all our communities at wwwlexisnexiscom communities. The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Center podcast, copyright 2010 by LexisNexis, a division of Rideau Severe Incorporated. LexisNexis, Total Practice Solutions. This is Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.